0: There's a line from Rumi, the poet, where he says, keep your eye on the bandage places because that is where the light enters you. Keep your eye on the bandage places. That's really what I'm going to talk about tonight. The relationship between that presence we bring to our struggles and the Transformation of a heart that happens in that process. Let's start with a story that I found on Facebook, which I generally don't consider a great um, vestige of wisdom, but (laughs) sometimes you know it comes in the most unsurprising of places. So this is a story about the heart and how it arises how it responds spontaneously when given the chance. I arrived at the address and honked the horn. After waiting a few minutes, I honked again. Since this was going to be my last ride of my shift, I thought about just driving away, but instead I put the the car in park and walked up to the front door. Just a minute answered a frail, elderly voice. I could hear something being dragged across the floor. After a long pause, the door opened. A small woman in her 90s stood before me. She was wearing a print dress and a pillbox hat with a veil pinned on it. By her side was a small nylon suitcase. The apartment looked like as if no one had lived in it for years. The furniture was covered with sheets. There were no clocks on the walls, no knick-knacks or utensils anywhere. Would you carry my bag out to the car, she said. I took her suitcase to the cab and then returned to assist the woman. She took my arm and we walked slowly across the curb. She kept thanking me for my kindness. Oh, it's nothing, I said, I told her. I just try to treat my passengers the way I'd want my mother to be treated. Oh, you're such a good man, she responded. When we got to the cab, she gave me an address and then asked, could you drive me through downtown? Well, I said, it's not the shortest way to go. And and she answered quickly, oh, don't mind, I don't mind, she said, I'm in no hurry, I'm I'm on my way to hospice. I looked in the rear view mirror, her eyes were glistening. I don't have any family left, she continued in a soft voice. The doctor says I don't have very long. I quietly reached over and shut off the meter. What route would you like me to take, I asked. For the next two hours we drove through the city, she showed me the building where she'd once worked as an elevator opera- operator. She had me pull up in front of a furniture warehouse that had once been a ballroom where she had danced as a girl. Sometimes she'd ask me to slow in front of a particular building or corner and would just sit, staring into the darkness. At the first hint of sun, as the first hint of sun was creasing the horizon, she suddenly said, I'm tired now, let's go. So we drove to the address she'd given me. It was a low building, a small convalescent home. Two orderlies came out to the cab as soon as we pulled up. I opened the trunk and took the small suitcase to the door. The woman was already seated in a wheelchair. How much do I owe you, she asked, reaching into her purse. Oh, nothing, I said. But you have to make a living, she answered. Oh there are other passengers, I responded. Almost without thinking I bent and gave her a hug. She held on to me tightly. You're always touching when I read this piece. You gave me an old you gave an old woman a little moment of joy, she said. Thank you. I squeezed her hand and walked into the dim morning light. Behind me a door shut, it was the sound of the closing of a life. I don't pick up any I didn't pick up any more passengers that shift. I drove aimlessly lost in thought. For the rest of the day I could hardly talk. What if that woman had gotten an angry driver, or one who was impatient to end his shift? What if I'd refused to take the run or had honked once and driven away? On a quick review, I don't think that I have done anything more important in my life. So this is the the heart of compassion, that responds appropriately, tenderly, kindly to what's in front of us in this case, an old woman who's on her way to die. These practices and teachings that have been cultivated and studied and walked for thousands of years, they're really all practices of compassion in that they, they serve to alleviate suffering. They, they serve to alleviate our pain, our distress, our, our anxiety, So the Buddha, in all his um, uh, efforts of teaching and walking for 45 years around, really came out of his compassion for the suffering that he saw in the world. And the teachings were a response to that. Once when he'd gathered some uh, some enlightened disciples, he said to them, he said, go forth, O bhikkhus, O monks, for the good of the many, for the happiness of the many, out of compassion for the world, out of benefit, for the good, for the happiness of all. So these, these, the, the, the spirit of this, which I love about this practice, is, is directly c- uh, confronting and looking at and alleviating this, the distress in the world. And hopefully you've had tastes of that in this time here together as you've been in silence and sitting and walking and observing your experience, observing your mind, observing the ways that we uh, keep falling into the pit of our own suffering, our dramas, our, our catastrophe scenarios, our fears of things that aren't real. In many, many ways, our, our self-hatred, our... Deficiencies. Hopefully, you've had moments and glimmers, and, and I know from talking to you individually and in groups that that's been the case. So there was a person in in one of my groups today, and she reported that um, as she was doing her yogi job uh, and she was uh, sweeping, and um, she felt a lot of uh, agitation and, f- and sort of frustration. And, uh, and, this, and I'm telling this story because it's a really great example of what happens when we're simply present to our experience. So she tracked what was happening with that tension and it reminded her, that the sweeping reminded her of having to do those kind of household chores when she was very young, when she was five. And uh, when her mother had had two young babies and she was put into that role of taking care of the house. And from that point on, she was given a lot of chores and, and a whole lot of feeling and emotion got shut down and made, made the conditioning for a, for, for, for a lot of painful, uh, uh, um, how do I say it? The condition that comes from those kinds of events you know, really, as you know radically, can change the course of our lives. And so this is many, many, many decades later Um, this because there's a it's that insight is landing in a field of awareness and curiosity and compassion in this case She was able to see that experience and feel the suffering feel the suffering of that young person That young girl inside and with that compassion comes the healing And so as I mentioned some point earlier the power of this practice is when the the practice the quality of mindful presence, awareness, comes together with the heart, with kindness, with compassion. And we meet our experience directly, whatever it is, and particularly if it's suffering, that's where the healing and transformation happens. So as many of you know, the, the context for these practices uh, that the Buddha laid out is in his teachings on the, what's called the Four Noble Truths the truths of uh, the the aspects of this life that underpin our experience, that there is unsatisfactoriness, that there is pain, that there is suffering, that there are causes to that pain which we can examine, which which we can understand and learn from. And there there is freedom, there is cessation, there is an end to that distress that we create in our minds and our hearts. And there's a path, there's a way, there's practices, there's teachings, there's tools that lead us uh, onward on that path. And in our practice, we we come to look directly at those things as we do in our lives. Has anybody escaped the first noble truth? Has anybody escaped pain and suffering or despair? The the, the Buddha talked about um, old age sickness and death, pain, lamentation, grief, sorrow, despair, uh, anybody escaped any of those? Right? No, it's part of being in this in this in this world. He said, you know, one of the, he said, um, what is what is suffering? We're not getting what we want, Lo- getting what we don't want. And you see, this on retreat, we get plenty of stuff we don't want, and there's a lot of hungering and longing after what we don't have, and we're separated from that which we love, which we hold dear, and losing what we have age, a vitality, loved ones. So many, many things that, you know, now I could give whole lectures on this, but I you got, you've already got your own PhDs and your own form of challenges and struggles and distresses and angst and fears, anxieties, and you know, and the list is endless, right? And then you turn on the TV and there's a whole magnification of that on a bigger scale there's a line that I that I reflect on a lot. It says, it goes, be kind to every person you meet because each person has been asked to carry a great burden. Each person has been asked to carry a great burden and that would be true probably for everybody here. Right? And you look around and you go, well these people don't look like they're carrying a great burden, right? But if you dig a little deeper into their stories and their histories as we get to do, you know, when we're listening to you in groups and individual meetings, there's a huge amount of uh, suffering that that, that nobody escapes from, whether it's the pain from my childhood, from conditioning, from neglect or abuse, or uh, the frustrations of um, relationship, the pain of loss and separation and grief. It's just uh, a long catalog. Again, another person was talking in a group today about um, the pain of uh, not having been in touch with herself and her feelings. Anybody feel like they've been out of touch with their feelings right? for most of their life? <laughs> there's a way that we disconnect. And, and, and when we come back to ourselves, when we come back home, we come back into our hearts or our bodies, and we feel the grief of that, we feel the grief of our disconnection from ourselves. And it's a beautiful thing to come back to ourselves, but we also feel the pain, and maybe we're carrying that grief for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years in some cases, and it's a true for this person. Pain of not having felt, there not being space or room or permission to feel, so it got repressed. But of course these things don't go away, as Anna said, what, what, what we resist persists, it stays around. At some point, we have to turn to face it, or it doesn't give us any choice. It says, hello, it's about time you felt this. And it feels scary, and it feels intimidating, and we spend a lifetime running away from it, and when we actually open to it, often it's not as bad as we think. It's actually a relief to feel those tears and that distress. So in terms of the teachings of the Four Noble Truths, the good news is there is a way out of this cycle. The good news is there is an end to suffering, there is cessation, peace is available. And we can't necessarily change the circumstances, there are certain things in this life around change and unreliability and impermanence, aging, sickness and death, we can't change those things. We can't change the, the vulnerability, but we can change our relationship to it. We can find a place of ease or peace or well-being or non-contention where there's a sense of abiding in a in a kind awareness that makes it possible to hold that stuff. So it's really all about our attitude and that's why we've been stressing that so much this week. It's about our attitude, how am I relating to this moment of sorrow, this moment of loneliness, this moment of comparing myself negatively, this moment of distress, this moment of boredom. Because right? it's, never, it's never the thing itself that's the problem, but it's in our relationship. So there's this, this story of a, uh, uh, this professor put on of finding the most compassionate child. I think it's a really odd competition, but you know, reality TV, and you know, it's an odd world we're living in. And so the winner of this this prize, uh, I'm not sure what the prize was, but the winner of this competition um, was a little boy, four year old boy, and uh, the story was he'd been with his mom living next door to this elderly couple, and, and the, the partner of the elderly man had died, and they'd been together a long time, and so the old man was very distressed, and one day their mom was walking, down the street past their house and uh, the, the boy let go of his mother's hand and ran up the garden path to where this man was sitting on the porch uh, on his rocker. And uh, the little boy kind of climbed on his lap and just sat there for a while. And the mom just waited by the, by the gate and then eventually the little boy came back and uh, the mom said, so what happened? What did you, what did you say? And he said, "Oh, no, I didn't say anything. I just helped him cry. I just helped him cry. So this is the attitude, you know, turning towards what is, with that sense of open, loving presence. So last year I um, I got revisited by an old demon. Uh, it was actually kind of a new demon, but sort of in the, in the, it was old demon in a new disguise. Um, so I had I had a really strong bout of anxiety for many many months, uh, quite pervasive, def- lodged in my body really affected my sleep, affected my, a lot of things. It certainly affected my well-being. And, um, and you know, as you hope, you know, every day you think, oh, maybe today it's gonna go away. <laughs> I'll just do this, I'll drink, I'll stop drinking coffee, and I'll, you know, get some massage, or I'll, you know, all the things, all the tricks we try to do to get rid of stuff. And of course it didn't work, because it, it persisted. And, um, some things, that's just, that's what happens sometimes, whether it's chemical, physical, biological, who knows sometimes where these things come from, right? And anyway, it came very strong, and it lasted for a while. And there was, you know, anxiety, for those of you who have suffered from anxiety, um, it's hard to be with, right? Because the very nature of it is what doesn't, it's hard to settle into, it bounces you out of it, right? It's, it's the, and sometimes being with it actually is, is the, is the, is the most unhelpful thing to do because it actually increases the anxiety. You get afraid of the anxiety and your fear and, your and it spirals. So uh, at some point, uh, I realized there was nothing I could do. There was nothing to fix, there was nothing to change. I just had to surrender into it. I just had to breathe, feel, and I, mostly what I did, I had to soften into it, like really soften in my body into my body and just allow the anxiety to be there. The the shakiness, the jitteriness, the, the, uh, the the angst. And, you know, again, the point wasn't to get rid of it, the point was to find a loving relationship to it. And of course, when I could rest in that place, then the anxiety wasn't a problem, it didn't go away, but because I was holding it, meeting it with that kind presence, it was okay. And I went about my day doing my things and you know, and eventually it faded and, and uh, went away. Occasionally comes back and I have to, same thing. Say, so, oh, he- hello, old friend, <laughs> another round. Okay, how long is this gonna be? A, a, a second, a minute, an hour, a day? And uh, so that's our practice, you know. Sometimes we have this idea, and and it's certainly in the cultural myth about spirituality and meditation that you, you know, you start here on the beginning of the path, or like, or on a, on a, on a staircase, and it's rough at the beginning, and then it gets better and better and brighter and lighter, and you know, and then you ascend into the clouds, or into cosmic bliss, or something, right? Well, that may, that may happen, you know, and good luck if it does. Um, but mostly what what's really happens is, is life is, is, is unreliable. You don't know what's going to happen. And there's periods of ease and delight and integration. And, you know, and then there's peace and there's times externally, internally driven that are really challenging. And so the practice is always asking us, how do I show up? When I'm when my heart's broken, with whether the end of a relationship, how do I show up when my dog dies? How do I show up when I'm so much fear I can't breathe? How do I show up when my body is you know, falling apart as as it ages? I have this new little quivery, shaky thing in my body. I don't know what I just, I asked Ashley. I said, "Put your hand here and see how this feels," because <laughs> that's weird to me. And, you know, you just, you just don't know what you're going to get. <laughs> so we don't have any control over that. We have control over our relationship, right? Which really is, it sounds so small and insignificant in the scheme of, you know, this universal suffering, but actually it's, it's incredibly powerful. It really is the liberating force of our minds. one of the places that this starts is with the, with the, the practice um, of self-compassion, of having compassion for ourselves. And there's a, a wonderful researcher, Kristen Neff, who's done a lot of research the last, I'm not quite sure how many years, at least the last 10, but maybe more like 20, researching this, this practice of self-compassion where we turn this the kind heart towards ourselves. And she said there's three things that... Uh, A key or components to self-compassion. He says, being kind and understanding to oneself in instances of suffering or perceived inadequacy versus judging ourselves. Two, recognizing that pain and failure are unavoidable aspects of the shared human experience. As opposed to thinking, I am the only one who's suffering. I'm doing it wrong. It's a problem. There's something wrong with me that I'm in pain, right? If you read all these self-help books or you get this view of the culture that somehow you're doing it wrong if you're suffering, as opposed to this is how it is, there's suffering in life. And third, the ability to face rather than avoid painful thoughts and feelings. So this is what we do in our practice. We're turning towards, we're leaning into. So if you think about your own life, the, and the different ways that you may feel struggle, right? in, internally, emotionally, physically, but then you've also got the, the broader circumstances of life, the upheavals that happened in the last five or six years with the economy, nose diving and the uh, recession kicking in and the huge amount of insecurity, people losing savings, housing, job security, pensions, I mean, huge distress. So there's the there's the internal stresses, and then there's the external stresses. And I know hearing people talking this this, and this especially in the last couple of days, a lot of different things are coming up in your in your experience that that are asking to be felt. You know, and our lives our lives are often so busy and so crammed we don't we don't have any space, and we partly cram it because we don't want to feel this stuff, right? We stay busy because it kind of we, it keeps. Chasing us, but if we keep running fast enough, we could think we can avoid it. But of course, as Ajahn Chah, Thai forest teacher, said, it, by running towards us, running away from suffering, we run towards it. It's like we run around the block, you know, trying to get away, and then a smack, you know, knocks us for six. So it's also good to have a sense of humor about this. Um, because if you don't, it's just not funny. <laughs> and um, and it's not. Well, it is. I mean, we are funny. We're peculiar creatures, aren't we? So there's this um, story that that pokes a little fun at this. It goes, a man observes a woman in the grocery store with a three-year-old girl in her basket. This is particularly for all you mums and fathers and grandparents as, as they pass the cookie section the little girl asks her mum for cookies and the mother says no the little girl of course begins to whine and fuss and the mother says quietly now Monica we just have half of the aisles left to go don't be upset it won't be long soon they get to the candy aisle, and of course the, the young girl again clamors for candy when she finds out there's not gonna be any candy she wails and the mother says there there Monica don't cry only two more aisles to go and then we'll be checking out And when they get to the checkout stand, of course, there's the the racks of bubble gum and stuff and, and on hearing that no gum is going to be purchased, the mother, again, patiently says, Monica, we'll get through the checkout stand in five minutes and then you can go home and have a nice nap. The man follows them out to the parking lot and stops the woman to compliment her. I couldn't help noticing how patient you were with your little Monica, he began, whereupon the mother said, what do you mean? My little girl's name is Tammy, I'm Monica. <laughs> Takes a little bit to get that one. And so we have to sometimes give ourselves that, you know, self talk. Just it's okay, just breathe. This person's really annoying, but it's okay. Everything's impermanent. I heard that once, everything's impermanent. So you know, you come on retreat, and of course, you don't sign up for suffering. We, you know, we don't advertise it. Like you, know, <laughs> you will inevitably be confronted with your human existential and all kinds of other stuff that you have not dealt with in your life. Right, that doesn't sell too many beds, you know, on retreat. <laughs> um, but that's what happens. You know, not for everybody. You know, some retreats are really easeful. Some retreats are just blissful and delightful. But usually, it's a mix. And sometimes we have what's called dukkha retreats, the suffering retreats. And I had one of them, the, I've had many, but I had one particular one which was um, uh, crowned my dukkha you know, retreats. And um, it was a long one, unfortunately. This is, you know, a week would have been great, but it was three months. And uh, you don't want to have a dukkha retreat for three months. One for a month, that was, that was doable, but three months was a little torturous. It actually started off quite well. And I was, you know, I'd been doing a lot of re- intensive practice and I was on my way to become a monk actually in Burma. And I was all revved up and I had my sort of spiritual ego on and I thought I was the bee's knees and you know, I was gonna get enlightened and become a world-renowned teacher and blah, 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 blah. And uh, you know, of course when you have too much hubris like that, you know, reality comes and gives you a little slap and a little wake-up call and pulls the rug from under you at some point. And of course it happened to me on that particular retreat, could have happen anywhere, but I happened to be on the retreat. And um, went through a particular long struggle with some early trauma that I hadn't uh, up to that point had any idea that was in my system. I was blissfully unaware and I, I, I understand that blissful ignorance is bliss, it can, it can work uh, until it doesn't. And then when you come out of the ignorance, it can be a really loud, slap and um, there was incredibly uh, uh, dismantling of my ego in a way and my spiritual ego and um, and quite painful and being on a retreat as you know you can't escape right there's not really a lot of entertainment even though we try desperately to read the notice board 10 times and (laughs) you know study all the labels of the tea and or whatever you can find, the, the, the lavatory cleaner, you know, oh, the bleach, wow, I didn't know there's so much in it. You know. But eventually you, you, you just have to feel, you, there's just no running away. And uh, what was interesting for me on that retreat was, I'd been meditating maybe about, I don't know, 10, 12 years or something, somewhat, a lot of those years quite intensively. And so there'd been some momentum built up and this particular kind of eruption of pain and trauma it kind of knocked me, knocked me literally sort of on my, on, you know, knocked me down. And I couldn't really practice f- for a while. But what, what remained was a quality of a kind presence. There was a compassion that, had, that was the residue of my practice. I wasn't trying to be compassionate, I wasn't being a good Buddhist and being all nice and kind to myself. I was just suffering so intensely that what, the, what, the response of the heart was compassion. And it was kind of remarkable for me to see because prior to that I, I considered myself pretty hard on myself and judgmental. Um, but some, there was some fruit of the practice had come through. And I look back on that time and the reason I'm telling that, there was many reasons I'm telling a story, but you know, we often look for the goodies, right? We look for the spiritual candy, we look for the meditation bliss, we look for those moments of delight. And of course we do because they're wonderful. And we think that's where it's at. But actually, that's not where it's at. In terms of our transformation, it's usually in the grappling with our demons and with our suffering. That's where where our heart grows, that's where our capacity for presence grows, that's where our compassion grows. And so I look back on that time, and it was a a dark, in the expression, the dark night of the soul, whoever had that was a quick one. Because usually they're they're a lot longer than one night, and that, it was, that I mean, one night sounds quite doable. This mine was about a year, um, and I look back on that year, and I don't ha- I don't have any regrets. Or like I, I have such profound gratitude, not for the pain, but for what the pain metabolized in me, what it what it transformed me, and what it did. It broke open my heart. My heart, at that point, was somewhat you know it wasn't cold, but it was reserved, and it was somewhat. Mm, yeah. Pulled in, and, uh, and 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 as as uh, often the process goes, it's only by diving into our own pain that we can really, really meet others and really empathize with others and really feel where someone's at and really be of service because we've done our own work. So particularly those of you who are doing in in some service work, teaching work, helping professions, you know this from your own experience that you have to do the inner work for really to be of profound service. I was with my nephew recently. Um, He just graduated in Toronto from film school. And I reminded him of he was going through a hard time. And I said I often quote him in in my Dharma talks, which he liked hearing. And uh, he, he used to sing this nursery rhyme when he was a kid. And he grew up in northern England like I did, uh, which is where the, where the Geordies hang out. It's a northern Northern, northern English dialect. And, uh, is, and it rains a lot, as it does in England. It rains more up there. And there's this... Um, so he, when it would rain, he'd put on his wellies, which I think you'd call them rubber boots or something, and uh, go through, you know, would go on walks, and he'd splash through the puddles. And uh, he would sing this song, and the nursery rhyme was... You can't go under it. You can't go over it. You can't go around it. You've got to go through it. And he'd sing it all. Well, I go and go under it. Go and go over it. Go and go around it. Go go through it. And I thought that's a great metaphor for life, right? It's a great metaphor for our suffering. Right? We think we can do all these things and tricks, and you know, your spiritual bypass. I'll just bliss it away, and you know, and you know, and you, we try because why not, you know? And until it doesn't work. And then we realize, oh, I've actually got to feel this stuff. I've got to face it. I've got to rest in the middle of it. And that's what practice is. So each moment we have this choice, like uh, that poem, the Hafiz poem, each moment we have a choice. Do we open, do we accept, do we allow, or do we turn away? Do we turn into, do we turn away? So, and I think a question for you to reflect on with your practice, to notice if your mindfulness, your awareness has an edge with it, when you're with yourself and you experience. Does it have a flavor of judgment or resistance or bargaining? I'll be with you as long as you go away really quickly. Does it have a sense of agenda, you know? Or an idea expectation of what should happen or impatience or rejection? I just notice the quality, and the, the sm- particular the subtle qualities of disdain, or avoidance, or checking out, and the, the bypassing is one. Or can we turn into it with love, with curiosity, with an invitation, with welcoming? Not easy to welcome our pain because it hurts. But what what, what what would it be to be to welcome whatever distress you're in today? This is uh, from Darlene Cohen who is a Zen practitioner and a writer who has suffered from long-term chronic illness. She's now past, since past. And um, she's writing about how she worked with her pain. She says, people sometimes ask me where my own healing energy comes from. How in the midst of this pain, this implacable slow crippling, can I encourage myself and other people? My answer is that my healing comes from my own despair and terror. It comes from the shadow. I dip down into that muck again and again and am flooded with its healing energy. Despite the renewal and vitality it gives me to face my deepest fears, I don't go willingly when they call. I've been around that wheel a million times. First I feel a despair, then I deny it for a few days. Then its tug becomes more insistent finally overwhelms me and pulls me down, kicking and screaming all the way. I'm clear I'm caught, so at last I give up to this reunion with the dark aspect of my adjustment to pain and loss. Immediately the release begins, first peace and then the flood of vitality and healing energy. I can never just give up to it when, it, when I first feel it stir. You'd think after a million times with a happy ending I would give up right away and just say, take me, I'm yours! But I never can. I always resist. I guess that's why it's called despair. If you went willingly, it would be called something like purification or renewal or something hopeful. It's staring defeat and annihilation in the face that's so terrifying. I must resist until it overwhelms me, but I've come to trust it deeply. It's enriched my life, informed my work, and taught me not to fear the dark. So that's a particular way of going in. Uh, We may do it differently, but what I like about that story is no matter how many times she goes down that path, the, the first instinctual response is, I'm not going there. I'm not going to feel that. I'm not going to, you know, I'm going to go, you know, grab a beer or something. Um, and then, you know, at some point, we have no choice. And at some point, we surrender. And when we surrender, the suffering stops. The pain may continue, but the suffering stops. And that's what the Buddha was pointing to, the ending of the suffering, the ending of the resistance to the truth of what is. And as we do this, it increases our capacity, increases our courage, increases our uh, confidence, and we can, we can give that to other people. So I notice when I'm working with people like on retreat, with students or with clients in my private practice, and people are going through states of despair, and fear, and annihilation, and terror, and all kinds of scary places, I, I feel, I don't feel afraid, because I feel like I've, I know those places in myself. I don't know that particular version of it, but I know the territory in myself, and I don't feel afraid of it. And that's a beautiful gift to give to somebody, that's the, the gift of fearlessness and the confidence that you can traverse this, you can work with this, you can, you can resolve this. And as we practice, and as the heart keeps opening, we start being touched more. I notice this in myself, there's a lot more, you know, as, as if we shut down our hearts, we also shut down the joy. If we start opening, then we also more, more open to everything else the beauty, the joy, you know, just the nature here, the tenderness, the vulnerability of life, the fragility of life. And so there's so much more room for joy. It's ironic as we go into uh, the darker places in ourselves, we also open the capacity for joy and happiness. And that's particularly true I notice in nature. There's something about this inner work, and that's why I do so much of my practice outside, is because it, it liberates something in our capacity to really feel the beauty and the vitality of the natural world. I was just telling Anna this story the other day, yesterday, of uh, we have swallows who are nesting, and some of you know they're, they're, they're trying to make a nest on on those spikes, which I'm not sure if they're going to be successful. But anyhow, they're trying to figure it out. They come back every year, and we're going to build a little platform for them, for them, so it's not so hard work, and and. Often they build them above the bathrooms and um and I used to wonder why do they build them in the most you know busy place on the block you know it's like people going in and out in and out little babies zone and, and it's because it's safe from predators and one night I came up uh it was a moonlit night, and I was walking around <laughs> it was like midnight and the the, sw- the 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 adult swallows were freaking out, and were oh, just swooping around they don't usually fly at night. And there was a great horn owl who was there was perched on the other side of the courtyard, checking out the nest, right? Because that's what they do. And um, you know, and 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 what was interesting about that, and I've and this uh, I come across this a lot in nature. You know, I want both to be well and happy. I want the chicks to be well, and I want the owl to be well fed. Right? The heart wants all life to be well and thrive. Right? And it's a paradox, because animals and beings eat each other to survive, right? And we still wish life to be well, right? So the heart helps hold, the mind can't hold the paradox, but the heart can hold it, because the heart has this vast capacity to love. So one time a woman came on retreat and she just lost her lifelong partner and husband and uh, really wanted to you know, come on retreat to, to find some place of renewal and inner resources and, and, and work with that grief and the process that was coming up for her. And at the end of her retreat, we checked in and she said, you know, what came out of this really going down into the, into the, the heavier places in my heart, the aspiration that came out was I just want to be kind. I just want to be a kind human being. And so often that's what comes out of these descents is they're just the basic goodness of the heart. This is from poet Roshani called Brokenness. There is a brokenness out of which comes the unbroken, a shatteredness out of which blooms the unshatterable. There is a sorrow beyond all grief which leads to joy and a fragility out of whose depths emerges strength. There is a hollow space too vast for words through which we pass with each loss out of whose darkness we are sanctioned into being. There is a cry deeper than all sound whose serrated edges cut the heart as we break open to the places inside which is unbreakable and whole. So sometimes we talk about having a broken heart. The heart doesn't really break. It can feel tremendous duress and stress. And it feels broken at times, I don't think it actually breaks. It certainly doesn't physically break. But what this poem is pointing to is that capacity to when we really allow that to feel the resiliency that's in every one of our hearts. One of the things I like to remind people when I teach and I think of uh, Dharma teachers, we're basically we're reminder agents or we're mirrors to remind you of what you already know but forget as we forget. And we all need reminding a lot, right? Because we forget a lot. And one of the things we need to be reminded is of is our own goodness. And you know, we touch that in, in the metta practice our own goodness, our own good nature, our own kind-heartedness. We all have that capacity in us. It's not alien. It's not something. We're not We're not adding something with the matter. We're just cultivating, fanning the embers of our own heart. And to remember that. That's not alien from you. It's inside you. And yeah, it gets shut down. It gets repressed. It gets blocked. It gets traumatized. It gets frozen and all that stuff that happens to us. But it doesn't the, the, the essence of our heart, like the essence of our mind, is love. That's our nature, and we see that when we respond instinctively, we hear somebody crying. You know, we see some. You know, a lot of people were watching the snake out there. There was a snake in the courtyard and went under the stairs. And you know, there's a certain we just feel. You know, this the all you know, the little lizards running around, and you almost stand on them, and your heart, you almost miss, misses a beat. You know, this tenderness for life. It's we don't have to work. We don't have to go. Oh, I should be better now for this for this lizard. No, we just feel it. You know, not all the time, but it's it's accessible. So the great Dharma teacher Gary Larson, in one of his far side cartoons, <laughs> he has this um, cartoon of of uh, the devil, Satan in hell, and they you know he's that's come that Satan's coming out of his fiery den and into the the entryway where the new recruits are coming in and he's shouting to his mom who's down there with a little apron on, little, you know, devil's apron, little tail and he's saying, Mom, no, no, not like that. And the caption says, uh, despite his repeated efforts to dissuade her, Satan could never prevent his mother from offering cookies and milk to the accursed. So she's there with the little tray of, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, no, no, that's not what we're doing here. And <laughs> right, so that's our good nature. And over time that capacity for compassion grows, it becomes, it becomes more accessible, more available. We, we sense that they, that's just the heart's nature, to love, to care. As Chantideva, one of the great Buddhist uh, writers on the subject from the Tibetan tradition actually the Indo-Tibetan tradition, he said, I should dispel the pain of others because it hurts like my own. Just like feeding myself, I hope for nothing in return. So there's a beautiful text he has called the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, which is when this compassion grows so much that, that our life just becomes unceasing activity to relieve the suffering of others. And maybe we know people like that who just seem to have this unstoppable kindness. And they're a beautiful inspiration. I, I met. Uh, uh, I was at a dinner party with some friends, and um, and this one of her friends uh, was. She was a. Uh, she was in design, and she was working for a company in Cambodia. And she was at a bar one night. And she just you know had a you know regular life and was doing that, doing business with her company and. Um, she overheard these two men talking about the sex trade sex trade, and they were talking about trading a girl, a young girl. And she was horrified and she went up to them and she confronted them and of course, uh, not of course, but she was unsuccessful at her t- attempts to intervene. And so she was so uh, outraged that she started a non-profit. She put her design skills to work, created a non-profit. She was in design and textiles and so she started creating these None. These um, uh, textile um, women's cooperatives, which would serve as a way to um, uh, provide employment for the women and particularly the girls, so they wouldn't, so they would be perceived in the community as having value, and so they wouldn't be sold into the sex trade. And um, and then the project became very successful, and now is in multiple countries all around the world, um, and. Uh, her mission is still the same. There's just this unstoppable desire to help. And she has this wonderful story of uh, one day she went back to this village. um, And so what they do with the funds in the school is they they help the children go on to, the the girls to go on to get higher education. And uh, one day she was talking to one of the the elders in the village, um, an an elder male, and who came up to her quite concerned and said, you know, the the men in the village are worried because all the girls are doing better than the boys in school. What's up with that? And she said, oh, I don't know what's up with that. Why don't you just talk to people and find out what's happening in other villages and see see what's going on? So she came came back in six months and the elder would talk to all the other villages and where she was doing her project. And funnily enough, all the young girls were doing better than the boys. And it was like an aha moment for them. And there was a a shift in the perception of value. I mean, it's sad that that, they needed that for the value to be seen, but that it, it radically transformed the perception and therefore the way those girls were treated. All came from one moment of feeling the heart tugged and pulled to help, to serve, right? So compassion ultimately is a, is an activity, it's an expression of service. It's a movement of the heart that moves, that wishes to relieve the suffering of others. So maybe I'll close with a um, a story Uh, again, which is uh, another story, which is um, about the movement of the heart, not so much with our own suffering, but really moving into the suffering, uh, touching the suffering of another. And it's really a, a strong motivation why we do this practice, that we take this work. You know, people might say to you, oh, that's so selfish, you went on a retreat all by yourself and you just sat and looked at your navel for a week. That's so, Self-indulgent, right? Anybody heard that? I'm sure. My right? meditations just, you know, all, you know, belly-gazing nonsense, and um, you know. But it's it's okay to go, you know, to Cancun and get, get get completely slaughtered, drunk for a week. That's not self-indulgent. But coming on a on a meditation retreat where you develop awareness and kindness and compassion and generosity and love, that's considered a problem. Something wrong with our culture, don't you think? Anyhow, so this is a story about um, someone who's practicing uh, or extending a heart. I haven't had a job since April 2011 due to multiple health issues. I currently draw a disability, but I'm having, trouble difficulty, I'm having trouble finding money at the end of the month, so I decided to look for a part-time job. I've been applying and interviewing since July with no prospects. This past Tuesday evening, it was freezing cold outside and going on to 9 o'clock as I was waiting at a city bus stop. Just as the bus pulled up, a young woman walked to the bus stop. She had a t-shirt and flip-flops on. She also was wearing several hospital bracelets. I asked her her name and if she had a coat or anywhere to go. She quickly told me she had lost her apartment because she had lost her job and then got very sick and was put in the hospital. She had no family in the area and didn't know where she was going to sleep that night. I dug in my purse and took out some bus tickets and $5 so she could get something to eat. I then took off my jacket and tennis shoes and gave them to her. I said, these are a little big, but they should keep you warm. She looked at me and said, aren't you going to be cold? I told her, for, for me, being cold for 15 minutes until I get to my place was worth it if I know you'd be a little warmer for wherever you end up. She cried and thanked me with a hug. I just told her to pass it on. Then after I got on the bus, that's when the miracle of spreading kindness happens. happened. I stepped up to the pay the fare, and the bus driver says, ma'am, I saw what you just did, and your fare is on me even though technically we aren't supposed to let you on the bus without shoes, he said with a wink. (laughs) I went to sit down. This lady was uh, dressed in a very professional business suit, calls me over to her seat, and she says, I want to know the name of the person who who just did the most inspiring thing I've ever seen. I told her my name, and she's like, what can I do for you to give back what I just witnessed? I jokingly said a paying job would be nice. She said I might be able to work something out. She asked for my name and number and said she'd give me the call the next day. The next day she calls me and says that she has a part-time administrative position in her company and wants me to come in and meet with the manager today. Turned out the lady was the head of HR for the company. I went for the interview and got a call this afternoon. I start Monday morning at nine o'clock. Thank you all for keeping inspiring me to keep passing this kindness on. I never expected to get so much in return. So may we in our practice of kindness and compassion to ourselves Never expect to get so much in return. And may we in two pass on the blessing and the favor and the goodness that we have reaped here. So let's just sit for a moment. to touch our hearts with radiant compassion and male beings than the fruit of a loving heart.